guys, if you've got your Bibles, take them out. Turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you have no idea that Nehemiah was even in the Bible, then turn to the book of Psalms and make a couple left-hand turns and you will be there. The name of the message today, the series is When You Hit a Wall. It's going through the book of Nehemiah and it's called Pre-Launch. So you, if you're sitting there going, we're in the pre-launch phase. Honey, what is that? What is the pre-launch phase? What does that mean? You'll find out today because that's the phase here in, in the second half of chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah that they're in. They're doing incredible work for the Lord, something that, that people have tried to accomplish for 141 years uh, has not been done, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem so they'd be protected. Uh, but they're trying to do it right this time. So they're in the pre-launch phase. Let me give you a little bit of a review if you're just joining us. I see some, some new folks from, well, everybody's just joining us pretty much. We're brand new, so if you're you. The prayer, um, we talked about prayer the first week. Actually, the first week we talked, we just met in a little small group with a half dozen or so of us, and we talked about the first thing that happens when you hit a wall is you pause. Duh. I mean, when you slam into a wall, you're going to be stunned, and you pause, and now you've got a, an opportunity for several reactions, good and bad. Nehemiah was stunned when he hit a wall. What wall did he hit? Some people came back from visiting Jerusalem, came back to where they were in exile in Babylon, and, and, and the report was um, that things were bad. The report was the walls have still not budge. There's still just a bunch of rubble. People don't really go to the temple, even though Ezra went back to uh, earlier to rebuild it. People still aren't worshiping because they're scared to go worship because people pick on them and people uh, mug them and people rob them and people sometimes kill them. And so there's not much worship going on. And he was so upset by this. So floored. He hit a wall. That was his wall emotionally, spiritually. And he just knees buckled. Scripture tells us he sat down and I don't think he went to find a chair. I think he just fell back, sat down and he wept and he wept for three days. So there's your pause in week one. But then he didn't just leave it there. He prayed. And he didn't just pray a little bit. This wasn't rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay, God, let's eat. That wasn't that kind of a prayer. It was a deep prayer, a heartfelt prayer, a weeping prayer combined with fasting that went on for three or four months. Three or four months. Whenever you do an intense and a great work and you set out to do something like for the Lord, it's not going to take casual little prayer. It's going to take really, really getting in tune with his spirit. And that's what he did. And he asked God for a lot of things. He said, God, use me. I know you want that these are your people, and that's your capital city, and that's where worship's supposed to be, and that's your temple. And so we're supposed to be doing this, God, and we're not doing it. So I don't have to ask you, Lord, if that's your will. I know it's your will, and it's not getting done. So can I do it? I'll do anything you want, Lord. I'll be your man. Just teach me how to do that. And then he planned, and last week we talked about that. So you pause when you hit a wall, then you pray when you hit a wall, uh, and then you plan. And prayer and planning, we learned, go together. And we learned last week, because I kind of quiz you guys. I'm going to do it this week, too, so you don't fall asleep. I'm going to pick on you. I'm just going to call you out. If you look like you're sleeping, you'll be the one. So to get those fake eyeballs, you can paste over your closed eyes, and then I won't pay. Uh, prayer and planning, they go together. You can't just be a, someone that prays. You know, you can't just be a let go, let God person. He says, you know, I'm just going to pray, and then God's going to move me, and he's going to tell me where to go. And I mean, it's like you're waiting for him to levitate you through his will in life. And God says, this is a partnership. I can do it without you, but I love you. And through grace and mercy and to bring more glory to my name, let's do this together because you're flawed human and I'm a perfect God. Let's see what happens. I think that's great that he'll link up with us, don't you? Because if he's not that kind of God, then I don't get to preach. If he's not that kind of God, I don't get to do what I'm doing. But he is that kind of God. He's forgiving and gracious and loves to use flawed human beings. So they go together. Nehemiah prayed fervently and planned earnestly for the greatest undertaking of his life. That's important. Uh, 
I want you to get this down. There's going to be a lot of these little principles. I call them leadership principles in what I think is the greatest leadership book in, of all the 66 books in the Bible, Nehemiah. So here's the first one. Failing to plan is planning to fail. Failing to plan is planning to fail. How so, Pastor? Well, you need to get this. Last week I saw some deer in the headlights, and so I want you to get it this week. Let's get really real. This is more than a pithy little saying. So married folks, as I get my own Bible here, let me see your hands. Where are the married folks? All right, that's quite a few of you. And I see some married folks that didn't raise their hands, so I don't know what's going on there. Uh, especially since your spouse is right next to you. That, I don't know what kind of drive over you had, but I'm assuming it wasn't good. So hopefully I'm praying it'll get better, praying it'll get better. So we got a lot of married folks here. Uh, is it fair to say, married folks, that you had some ideas about what marriage would be like before you got married? Should I ask how that's working out or skip over that part? Let's skip over that part. There may be a few of you. Uh, some of you, why are you so hyper, Pastor? There you go right there. <laughs> Biggest can of Red Bull I've ever seen in my life. I asked somebody if they could bring me a can. I meant like those little mini ones. They bring me, they bring me that. So I'm going to be funneling Red Bull here. Uh, so you had a vision of what you thought marriage would be like. And I think for, you know, maybe you thought things like, I, I wrote down some of my things, and, and where's Michelle at? And, and these are true, and they've happened. So... Uh, a loving partnership. You grow old together. You, you're on that the porch and the rocking chair. We don't have a porch. We got to get that. But uh, you're you're just best friends, men. Maybe you always wanted to be thought of as her hero. Ladies, you hope your man will take care of you, provide. There's security there. This is just some things. I just put some things that I hear a lot. So here's a question: Do those things just happen? I mean, it just happen because we all have a vision. We all want it, so they just happen, right? Well, no, they don't. You've got you to make plans, and then you've got to implement those plans in, in order to move in that direction. Now, married folks again, where are you? Okay, keep your hand up if you have kids. Okay, most of you keep your hands up. So the same thing applies there. We have an idea of how we want our kids to turn out. Love the Lord, right? That's what I want. By the way, this means you want it too. This means, no, I don't care. They uh, love the love Lord or not. Uh, put him first, make something out of, out of themselves, um, be honoring and respectful in, in, a, in an increasingly dishonoring and disrespectful society. Don't you want those things for your kids? Right? Does that just happen? It doesn't. I mean, I've never met the family, you know, who said to me, yes, this week we're, our daughter is picking up the Mother Teresa Award. This after last year, my son got the Billy Graham Award. He's only 12, but, I mean, he's just, he's going to be the next thing. And we don't know how it happened. I mean, we've got 90 acres, and, and we put them out on the back 40. They were raised by wolves. They live in a cage. We slide their food on the door. And I, I just have, they're, they're got, it doesn't just happen. Um, you'll know how your kids turned out that way. You've got to make steps, make plans, and then work the plan, implement the plan, or it's not going to happen. You can pray for your kids. And, and usually godly parents that really, really pray for the kids, they're going to have good kids. It doesn't mean there's not going to be battle. But if you don't implement the things God shows you when you pray, it's not going to happen. They go together. Now, we learned last week that some people said, Pastor, I'm in trouble then because I am not a planning type. Uh, I'm more spontaneous. And that's okay for you to admit it. Can I see you? Would you admit it this week? <laughs> okay, because there was like 10. Where'd you go? Did you leave? It's okay. Two that are more free will. That's more me. Michelle, is that right? I'm definitely more spontaneous. Michelle is definitely the planner. But if you're a free will and type, that might be true, but I want you to face something. All three of us, let's face this together. Get, 
last chance to be honest. Where are the spontaneous types in here? Oh, okay. It tripled when I asked it twice. Unbelievable. So the spontaneous are also liars. Or lovers, so they, we'll, we'll preach on that next week. Uh, listen, I'm like that. It might be true that you say, I don't like to have a, work the whole thing out. It's too mechanical. And I like to be spontaneous. Uh, even if you're that way and you're freewheeling, uh, again, if you don't have a plan for your kids, you do have a plan. It's a plan to fail. You need to know that. Even if you're spontaneous, if you don't have a plan, you do actually have one. And it's going to be a bad one, a miserable one. It's another thing, a leadership principle thing to watch out. Those who don't plan out godly steps will live out ungodly ones. Write that down. Those who don't plan out godly steps will live out ungodly ones. I mean, you'll just kind of spontaneously walk an ungodly path because you didn't plan to walk a godly one. The person whose life was incredible for God, gang, can actually look back and clearly see the steps and choices along the way that led them there. I mean, it's clear. They don't just, you know, like I said, you don't, you don't say, wow, I don't know how this happened. I love the Lord. My life is great. Look at the testimony. I know I'm going to hear well done, good and faithful servant, and yet I, I don't even know Jesus. <laughs> it, just, it just happened. It doesn't happen that way. They can look back and clearly see the steps and choices that led them there. <clears throat> but here's something I think a lot of people don't realize. If you were to go back in time and go back and trace the steps, I believe that the individual whose life is a train wreck, and we've all met these people, I mean, nothing's gone right. They've hurt people. Maybe they've gone through marriage after marriage. Just everything's a train wreck. Can also look back, and if we had some magic history thing, and by the way, when we all stand before God someday, we'll have that. We'll get to see our life played back. I don't know how God's going to do that. But God's word makes it clear that he's going to do that. Now, if you're a Christ follower and, and your sins are forgiven, all that, you don't stand back and, and God's not going to go back and make you feel miserable. That's not the purpose of it. But if those who don't know him, they're going to see this, this breadcrumb trail. They're going to see what they left and see that, wow, I, I made choices that led to that life. It's, I can't blame anybody else. It's me. And see the breadcrumb trails that led to either one, the shortcuts, the compromises that led to the bad one, or the good choices and all that led um, to the good path. <clears throat> Truth is, now this is deep, so listen closely here. Truth is the path to the gingerbread house and certain doom for Hansel and Gretel, true story, was just as clear as the one to the palace for Cinderella. I mean, I'm into, I was always into fantasy things and stuff growing up, just the little stories and the... Uh, some of you think I'm pretty weird now that it, Cinderella was mentioned. It's not that it was that particular one, but just magical stories growing up. Uh, here's the difference. The path there was, if you look at these little fantasies, uh, were just as clear, the breadcrumb trails. It's just that one was immediate and effortless. They little, left a little breadcrumb trail, Hansel and Gretel, and they went to, uh, what, what's the house they went to? They went to, like, the witch's house or something? What was it? Grit. No, that's the next one I'm going to talk about. I'm not asking you guys. You got your fairy tales are all messed up. That was like Darth Vader. No, that's different. <laughs> One led to uh, some witch's house, and she was going to cook them in the oven and eat them and all that. So Hansel Gretel, I know that, but whose house did they go to? She had to be nasty. She was going to cook them. She was going to eat them. So they got out of it. But listen, you can tell the breadcrumb trails led to a bad place, right? But it was an easy path, and it was immediate, and, and there was nothing real bad on the way there. In fact, there were lollipops and gingerbread, and it, bread, and it looked good, candy, the whole bit. The other one, if you look at the, the story of Cinderella, I, I see abuse. 
I see pain, heartache, before the thing ends with joy and the happily ever after moniker that goes over those types of stories. Uh, but to lead to happily ever after, on and on and on, there was pain, there was stretching, there was growth. All right? I think three of you have it now. <clears throat> so we're going to go to the one that, that Craig wanted so desperately to talk about. And the road to Little Red Riding Hood's grandma's house and the big bad wolf is just as clear as the road to marrying the prince and living happily ever after for Snow White. They're both clear paths, but very, very different. <clears throat> the one looks shorter, right? Easier and more convenient, remember? In Little Red Riding Hood, it was the wolf that changed the signs, right? He said shortcut to uh, grandma's house. And so that was much easier. It got to cut off a lot of time. It was more convenient, but it actually led to a place where there was death and and uh, I'm not trying to go too far into these. Some of you guys, it's just a story, Pastor. But the principle's really the same. Because Satan's the king of the shortcuts. Satan is the king of, hey, try this way. Why should you go through all that and all the growth and the pain and church? There's a more fun and immediately gratifying life waiting over here on the shortcut road. Take that. But listen, the one leads to the big bad wolf with the short, convenient way, while the other looked virtually impossible, forever long, against all odds, but it led to happily ever after again. And, so, and I'm amazed at what makes fairy tales popular, what makes them fun to watch in movies, and what makes them fun to read and interesting is this formula, which I think really comes from the Word of God. So believers need to face it. There's a real enemy out there, and here's what he wants you to believe. The, the real enemy out there, Satan, he's not fake. He's not a concept. He's not even... You know, the force, dark side, light side. He's real. He doesn't wear a little red suit. He doesn't have little horns. He doesn't carry a menacing-looking pitchfork around. The Bible says in, in several places, Old Testament and New, that he comes across and wants to come across as an angel of light. So what Satan is is he's a great mimicker. He's a great copier. He's going to look like, well, who's he going to look like? Who's he really want to look like? God. Specifically, who does Satan want to look like? Jesus. He wants you to get confused. He wants you to think that, and there's a lot of cults and a lot of religions out there that use the name of Jesus, right? But if you really look closely, not, that's not Jesus of John 14, 6, who's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through the real Jesus. It's not that Jesus. It's not that Jesus. Not to get political or anything here, but let's go ahead and get political, and you guys can throw rocks. Uh, yeah, let's not. I was going to go somewhere, and it's going to get me in too much. Let, let's skip over that one. I may come back to it if you guys don't seem awake enough. Gang, this is the oldest tactic that Satan uses to switch the signs on us. Now, that's the oldest thing he ever did. How old, Pastor Rob? Think Garden of Eden. Think Garden of Eden. Isn't that what he did? Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? By the way, it's the only thing they're told not to do. You can have the fruit of any of the trees in the garden. It was paradise. You can do anything you want. Remember how it was? I know there's kids here, but they ran around without clothes on, and it was paradise, and it was good. And they, that, was, that was the garden. One rule. One rule. One tree says, wet paint, do not touch. That's it. That tree. And Satan goes, and he changes the signs, and it has one that says, have at it, enjoy, free food, buy one, get one free, that kind of stuff. Eat, enjoy, take all you want. And so all of a sudden, there's a shortcut. And what is Satan saying? Not only can you eat this fruit, but this fruit's better than all the other fruit that you're allowed to eat. The forbidden fruit's the best. This one is a shortcut to being like God. Did he not say that? He said, God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit. Let me tell you why. Because if you do, God knows you'll be just like him. 
And so that was appealing to them. It was a shortcut to something that looked great. And so they lost paradise, something that was great, for something that was a shortcut and temporarily looked good. And it ruined everything. It brought sin and death into the world. So throughout our lives, gang, he's going to switch the signs on us. He's going to make convenience and little effort look like the way to go. But we need to know that more often than not, it leads to the big bad wolf. That was my point. Now, some of you aren't convinced. You're still like, but I'm, I'm still not a planner, Pastor Rob. That's still not me. And now I'm scared and not a planner. So that's all that you really did for me. If that's you, I would say, don't overthink it. Stop overthinking it. As, as a friend of mine used to say, he's a, he's a well-known preacher now, Perry Noble, he used to say, you're overcooking it. Don't overcook this. Anybody can implement a plan if they take small enough steps. I mean, walking God's path, even if it's confusing and it's a way to live that you've never lived before, you can actually do it. You can do it if you just take small enough steps. If it seems overwhelming and too complicated, take smaller steps. Move a little bit slower. But you can do it. I promise you, anyone can. And if you still think that doesn't include you, maybe this will help. This is a little gift of me to you. This will help. Dr. Marvin, you can help me. For the first time in my life, I feel like there's hope. I feel like I can be somebody. Bob, there's an old saying that the best psychiatrist in the world is the one right inside of you. Yeah. I can help you. Yes. Thank you. Bob, there is a groundbreaking new book that has just come out. Ah. Now, not everything in this book, of course, applies to you, but I'm sure that you can see, when you see the title, exactly how it could help. Baby steps? It means setting small, reasonable goals for yourself, one day at a time. One tiny step at a time. Baby steps. For instance, um, when you leave this office, don't think about everything you have to do in order to get out of the building. Just think of what you must do to get out of this room. And when you get to the hall, deal with that hall and so forth. You see? Baby steps. Baby steps. Oh, boy. Baby steps. Baby steps. Baby steps through the office. Baby steps out the door. It works. <laughs> I get such a kick out of that. I'm alone, apparently, in getting a kick out of that. But <clears throat> I don't know all of you. I've met some of you, and you're a little bit like Bob. Some of you, maybe. And if you, I'm a lot like Bob. My wife says I'm a lot like the guy in that movie, which is, I don't think, a compliment. And so sometimes things like that are, sometimes I look at things that God asked me to do, and they're huge. They just look daunting. And remember, God says, I can do this without you. I don't need you. But I want to do it with you. And if it's hard, then I'll hold your hand, and I'll lead you, and we'll just take one step at a time. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What does that mean? It means that God's just going to show you the light right where your next step is, under my feet. I always looked at that and wondered, why don't you give me a, one of those used car lot lights that beams about three miles and show me about five years down the road, Lord? Anybody ever wish God would do that? 
Instead, he goes, tell you what, my word is a lamp under your feet. Thanks. I'll log that away. That's like two feet in front of me. Yeah, that's it. Because I don't want you to go running off ahead. I don't want you to go off ahead and think you know where you're going. Why don't you just hold my hand, and I'll do, if it takes that, I'll do baby steps, and we'll go slow. So Nehemiah prayed, and he planned, and now he will prepare for this pre-launch. It's different than planning, preparing. It's planning's first cousin. A plan can all be on paper and a spreadsheet, and in preparation, you actually begin to execute the plan. You actually begin to assemble the supplies. You begin to put them in the right places and begin to move things. I call it the pre-launch phase. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. If you weren't here last week, Nehemiah went before the most powerful man in the world and said, I need to go back home, and would you let me rebuild? And Nehemiah's job is he's a cupbearer. And again, if you weren't here last week, the cupbearer is the one who tasted the wine and the food before giving it to the king. And if it's poison and he dies, then he loses his job because he's dead. Or he tells the... uh, or he tastes it and it goes good and the, and the king knows that the food's not poison. More times than not, if you lasted in that job for a while, then you became, you moved up in rank and authority. and You became sort of like a secretary of state. So he's a powerful, influential person. However, it was against the law to be sad in the king's presence. Can you imagine a, a king like that? It, it's against the law to be sad. If you frown, if you look down, he could have you killed and often did have people killed who brought down... Uh, his countenance, or we said last week, who threw off the emperor's groove. If you do that, you can get thrown out the window. You can get killed. So Nehemiah risks it anyways. He can't hold back the sadness. The king sees that he's sad, and he says, I'm brokenhearted because my people can't worship God. Let me go back. Let me try to get this wall built. And because God's moving in Artaxerxes' heart, he says, yes. He says, how long will you be gone? And it doesn't say right there that he told the king, but it turns out he was gone for 12 years. So it's incredible. I mean, this is his number one guy, and he says, I'll let you go. Twelve years, he's gone. So he's going, and, he sa- and the king says, I want you to be protected, so I'll send an escort of armed people with you. I'll give you t- timber, uh, supplies, all kinds of things, money, everything that you need. Uh, so he's got all this in this pre-launch phase, timber, bodyguards, time off, letters for the governor. So now he's beginning to execute the plan. And the reason it works is he's already thought out in advance everything he could possibly think that could go wrong. Everything that can go wrong. That's a good plan. That's what hasn't happened for 141 years. People just kind of set out for Jerusalem, said, let's do this. God wants us to do this. We know it's the right thing, so it's got to work. It doesn't have to work just because it's the right thing. It's a partnership. God wants you to do the homework a little bit. Nehemiah does this, and he's thinking, well, there's people that don't want the wall rebuilt. There's enemies around Jerusalem. There's people that love the fact that it got torn down. There's people that'll be you know, sort of players on both sides. I won't know if they're my friend or enemy, so I better be ready. So he has these letters prepared from the most powerful man on earth that say, I have authority to do this. So he gets there with the letters in verse 10, but when Sambal and Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, some of your Bibles don't say displeased. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It can mean grieved as well. And so some of your Bibles say it angered him. Some of your Bibles might say it displeased. Some of your Bibles might say grieved. It's all of that. Uh, of course, they got mad because these governors are shaking down the people of Israel, the people in Jerusalem. They get money for protection. It's kind of like, it's like the mob. It's like the mafia. They're extorting these people. And that's why they're afraid to worship. They say, if you give us money, we'll protect you. From who? From us. Just how the mob works. Well, now that they're coming, 
uh, and Nehemiah's coming. He's got this escort, and, and they've got these letters, and they know the most powerful king on earth is backing them. Of course they're angry because they're going to lose their money. Of course they're displeased. We can understand that. But when I read that they're grieved, I blank out. Is that not weird? What, are they crying? What, are they sad? Yes, because I looked up the, the, the depth of that word, and, and it literally means like a funeral. They're broken about this. They're grieving. They're crying. They're torn up. How is that possible? Because they actually think the way they're living is right. Sam Bow, Tobiah, they actually think it's right. They actually go, he's going to ruin the way. Things are working out great. They may have even thought they were following a moral path, a path of integrity. Tobiah is actually not a foreigner. You know what Tobiah is? He's a Jew. He's one of them. He's one of them. So he knows the law. He knows they should be worshiping. And he didn't want his life of extortion ruined. So they're grieved because they think, we're living right. We should be the rulers, and he's going to ruin it. He's a bad guy. They couldn't have been more wrong and their twisted thinking. So he's got these letters, and they read it, but it doesn't change anything. They're displeased, grieved, and angry. But I've got to ask this. This, is, this shows you Nehemiah's preparation. What if he'd met the governors without letters of authority? Like Ezra had gone before him and not did, done all these things. <clears throat> because, gang, this goes bad enough with the letters of authority. It doesn't really go that great with the escort and the letters. I believe if he didn't have these letters and anticipated this, that they might have attacked him right then and there with more men and killed him and just said, we thought he was an enemy and tried to get away with it. This would then have just been another epic fail in 141 years of epic fails to build the wall. It had just gone to, it would not have a book in the Bible. It would not be a great leadership book. It would just be another fail. Curious enough, and I want you to sort of log this way. We'll look at it later. But by the way, later on we'll see that Sambat and Tobiah will attempt to spread slander and lies about Nehemiah to undercut his authority with the people. And one of the lies they're going to spread is that he doesn't have authority to do this. Hey, he's trying to undercut Artaxerxes. He's trying to get this wall built in rebellion against Artaxerxes. Now, I find that odd. Why? Why do you find that particular? Well, I don't know if you do. I do. Why do you think I find that particular slander and lie um, fascinating, peculiar? I mean, if you were awake, what would you tell me? So is it the Red Bull? Am I just somewhere you're not? <laughs> what, what is it? Another, well, I find it, listen, the, the gossip can be false or true. I mean, people can gossip, and, and it can be able to have a little truth in there, and they're just tearing someone down. They're obviously not edifying them. They're not there to talk behind their back. Slander's different. Slander's different because it's saying something bad about somebody that you know is not true. These guys know this is not true because they got the letters. They saw the king's seal broken, and they read these letters, and they realized the king has given them authority to do this. Nehemiah's under Artaxerxes' authority. So the very thing they're saying is opposite of what they know to be true. It's slander. So they do this, and I'm going to tell you later how, and this is very, very key. I'm going to tell you later how Nehemiah reacts. Because even for Christ followers, it's, it's not a way we typically react. It's not a way I typically react. It takes the Holy Spirit, it takes the love of Christ to react like he did. We'll get back to that. Here's a principle you need to know, and you probably know this already. Unbelievers don't fight fair. Write that down. Unbelievers don't fight fair. Some of you are like, oh, I got to note that. I thought they did. No, <laughs> they don't. And Satan doesn't fight fair. The enemy doesn't fight fair. Raise your hand if you ever noticed this. 
Okay. Believe it or not, about 10 hands were down. So if you haven't picked up on this by now, wow. It's going to be a tough life. It's not like Satan gang is out there going, you know, I really could nail him here. You know, Billy Graham, I, I, I could really get him here. I'd love to get him here, but in the interest of fairness, and according to Robert's rule of order, and how we're supposed to do this, I, you know, I can't punch him in the throat. I can't nail him here. I can't wipe him out because it wouldn't be fair. He's never doing that, ever. Goal number one for Satan in your life is that you would never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's goal number one. If you are saved, do you think he gives up? No, it shifts to goal number two, which is, quite frankly, I see it almost more effective, which is to disqualify you or put you on a shelf and get you so bored or so off track for God that at least you don't tell others about Jesus. And so you're a non-threat. Most people will live their lives as Christ followers, and I, I'm not even going to grace that by saying Christ followers. Most people will live their lives under the moniker of Christian, having never told a single, well, I wouldn't say told, having never won a single person to Christ. You realize that? Most people, let's say you're saved, you know, walked the aisle, prayed, really genuinely meant it, asked Christ in your heart, you're seven years old, you die at 85 or 90, we've never, most people, most, never led anybody to Christ. Never led anybody to Christ. I read a, uh, maybe some of you know, I bet Don Lloyd knows this, we'll, we'll see, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, it's some outrageous thing, but I heard that if every believer just brought one believer to Christ, if, if everybody just, just led one person to Christ, I think we'd reach the whole planet. What is it, like 10 years? We'd reach the whole planet. It, we'd be done. We'd be done. Everybody will have heard and either accepted or rejected the gospel, and Jesus Christ could return. So what does that tell you about what we're doing? I mean, we used to have big days uh, where our pastor before, we'd have these big days, Christmas, Easter. A couple hundred would get saved. One, I think the biggest one was 280 people at a Christmas or Easter, and I love those days. Those are great, but that can't be all we're doing. That can't be all we're doing. I expect this Christmas from this group as we grow that it's going to be another harvest for Christ, but that can't be all we're doing. I want to build into the DNA of this young and vibrant and strong church already, even in this pre-launch phase, that we care about loss like Jesus cares about lost people. When you see someone that's lost, you see someone who's a hellbounder. You see the truth. You know where they're going to end up if you don't intervene. <clears throat> so his goal, Satan's goal, is to keep you from Christ, ruin your life, and thoroughly neutralize you. He'll stop at nothing. So what should be our response to evil then? Well, here's a leadership principle I learned from Nehemiah. You don't fight fire with fire. You don't go up and go, okay, these guys have gotten pretty bad. Let me assemble my leaders. Listen, we can outdo them. They're pretty evil, but they ain't seen nothing. Way do we bring what we've got. We know a lot about them. We can ruin them. You don't, you don't do it. In fact, write this down. It's the Romans 12, 21 principle. I've really been dealing with this a lot this week. Uh, somebody uh, pointed my wife and I to a Spurgeon sermon that um, Spurgeon was an incredible preacher years ago uh, in England. And he preached on this one verse once. And here it is, Romans 12, 21. It says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So what that's saying? It's saying what you don't want to do. It's saying what I don't want to do. It's saying when somebody does evil to you, you don't try and say, well, you think that's good. I've got twice as much evil to bring against you. I will, I will ruin you. you. You slandered me. I will slander you so bad. You'll never get a job in this town. It's not that at all. He does say one-up them. Go ahead and one-up them, but make sure it's with good, not evil. 
love them so much, show them so much grace and mercy that they're blown away by your opposing reaction. That's how you'll defeat evil. That's how you'll beat it. And that's not our nature. It's not my nature. It's hard to do. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem, was there three days. Then I arose in the night. I had a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Nehemiah is there now. The Secretary of State has arrived. Why doesn't he call a town hall meeting like you and I might do? Where's the parade, the ribbon cutting? What's going on? This is really bizarre. There's a lot of cool stuff in Nehemiah, but he gets there, and he waits till it's dark, and it's just moonlight out there. And he goes out with a select group of men, you can see here in a moment, and he gets on a donkey, and he actually mentions that. I got on a donkey, I rode, and I was the only one with an animal. And we're, you know, if you're writing down or taking minutes on this meeting, you're going, you're really throwing in a lot of details. I really don't care, you know, but that's, that's important. And we'll see in a moment. Nehemiah believes that to have gone right out and told everybody what he's doing and just kind of shot off with his mouth, it's way too premature for that. It's way too premature. And you're thinking, but he prayed for months. And he's gotten great reports. And he's done all this planning. And he's got an escort, a military escort. And he's got all these supplies and all. So why wouldn't he just say, tomorrow morning it all starts? Because he hasn't seen it. He's not seen the lay of the land. He's only heard. He doesn't know what it's really like. It's a lot of assessment and fact-finding that still needs to be done in this pre-launch phase. Some of us read this and they wonder, I think, is Nehemiah getting cold feet? He gets there and he's looking around. What's he doing? Did Nehemiah go on the midnight ride of Nehemiah Revere here because he was having second thoughts? It looks like it, right? It kind of looks like it. When you read this, you're going, is he going out and looking at the wall and going, okay, guys, I've got to admit, I, did, I heard some bad things. I didn't know it was that bad. I mean, this is a no-win for anybody here. So quietly, tomorrow, let's pack up and go back home so we can't rebuild. Now I know why the wall wasn't rebuilt. By the way, we came through some enemy territories. I saw their armies are bigger. I saw that their, their nation's a lot bigger than, a, than the few of us. Uh, I mean, a lot of people are going to get killed. This has potential to really go south fast. Let's not do it. That's what it looks like. He's having second thoughts about the vision. But again, he didn't investigate the walls in order to decide whether or not to go ahead with the project. That's not what he's doing at all. This guy's a brilliant leader. He wanted to have a better picture of what they were up against so he could be prepared to answer as many questions as possible because he's got to get the group fired up to do something that could not be done in 141 years. How do you do that if when people are going, I have a question, and you answer like the White House press conferences? No, no comment on that. Next, I don't really know. Next, I hadn't heard that. You really can't handle it that way and fire people up. You're going to have to know exactly what you're up against, exactly how bad it is, and how you plan to overcome those hurdles. And because of these three nights of doing this, he knew. He was prepared to answer questions. Again, he's still in the pre-launch phase here. The supplies likely have not all arrived, maybe most of them. Nehemiah, like I said, has never laid eyes on Jerusalem. He's only heard about it. So he doesn't have firsthand knowledge of what he's facing. So here's another one of those things I want you to write down. You see the pens moving here. A pre-launch before it's the right time leads to a post-disaster every time. A pre-launch before it's the right time leads to a post-disaster every time. Every, you rush into something and you haven't prayed and you haven't planned and you haven't asked God and you haven't explored. It's going to be a disaster every time. So getting a number of us, as I talk to you, are very excited about all the poss- possibilities of, for Impact Church. I am the most excited. And it's not just because I think of the Red Bull. There's a lot of reasons. Although it helps, it does help. I'm just excited. I'm excited because I've talked to you guys and I've, and I've heard your hearts and you're fired up. And because this is the fourth time in my life, including young life, with uh, schools that should not have, have, have 
blown up and, and kids gotten saved. I mean, was, they were dead areas. And I watched God do an amazing work over and over and over again against all odds as long as the vision was his and the hearts were right and we had faith and we trusted him. I've seen him do it over and over. He stretched my faith over and over again. But it's important that we don't get ahead of ourselves. That's why I, I'm probably going to start the next, I don't know how many weeks with, you know, at this point. We're in the pre-launch phase. Well, the church, that, game, that doesn't mean you can't invite people. In fact, I'm going to challenge you and give you some homework when we're done about inviting people. We need to. But when we start reaching the lost, the way that we reach lost, um, with our philosophy and, our, and our, um, the way we are missioned as a church, we need to have some other things in place. We need to be ready. <clears throat> so let's not get ahead of ourselves. I believe as well that God's doing a great work, but I've learned over the years how much better it can be if care and careful planning are in place. Because, listen, because Nehemiah does this, the overall project is far greater success than anyone could have ever imagined. Even so, the Word of God does throw in one seemingly wasted fact. I mentioned it before. It says, there was no animal with me but the one I rode on. I love these kind of facts in there. You need to know there's nothing wasted in the Word of God. And so I know some of you are thinking genealogies right now, but I mean nothing. Nothing's wasted. I've heard great preachers preach through the genealogies and gotten a ton of stuff out of there. There's, there's one of those things that mentions a lot of families in here, and we ain't skipping it. We're going to go through it. Some of you are going, oh, what week is that? Because <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not coming to that. You'll miss a big one then because it really there's a lot in there. <clears throat> so he mentions this animal. I'm the only one that had an animal. I rode on it. What's this up? Isn't this like saying, I went to assess the situation with my posse, and I rode in my Lexus because the rest of them were poor, didn't have a car or a driver's license, so they had to walk. Is that, is that what he's saying here? Why is this thrown in? Well, we were surveying this thing at ground level, is what Nehemiah is saying. Nehemiah is saying. But I made sure I still had a little better view than the rest of them. Because a lot was riding on this, I couldn't afford to miss a thing. So honestly, I think he got up on a donkey, and those guys are walking behind at ground level, and he's the leader, and he's going, I need to be able to see above the piles of rubble. I need to see what they can't quite see. I can't afford to be in the, in the pile of people and just looking around. I've got to be above if I'm going to lead. There's a leadership principle called the law of the lid that John Maxwell talks about. It's worth writing down. If, even if you have carpal tunnel, you've been writing a lot, write this one, the law of the lid. Nehemiah is using that right now. Here's what it says. It says if you're a leader and you really want people to be a 10, you know, you're really trying to raise up leaders in your, in your industry or your church or your ministry, and you're an eight, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Unless somehow you can raise your leadership potential up to a 10 yourself, you can't make somebody a 10 when you're an eight. You're asking them to go somewhere you can't see, you've never been, you have no idea about. However, if you're a 10 and you want somebody to be an eight, you can do that, right? You're a great, great leader, and you can do that. You're asking, you're going to raise them up to a place you've seen, you've been, and you know how to get to. So Nehemiah is saying, I'm a little bit higher. I want to see this. I've gotten planning. I've gotten information. Now I'm seeing it firsthand. Now I'm a little bit higher. I've got the 50,000-foot view, the 30,000-foot view, the 200-foot, the ground level, all of it. I want to be a few steps ahead of everybody else. We can't be together. I have to lead them. Leadership principle. The what of the vision always precedes the how. Let me say that twice. I want you to think about it. The what of the vision always precedes the how. I mean, just think about it logically. Does that make sense? I mean, who wants to get excited about the how and you don't even know what we're doing it for? I mean, we're going to go out and plant a new church. That's all I'm telling you. It might be any 
any belief. We could we can pick whatever God you want. We'll vote next week on that, on which God we want to follow. But here's how we're going to make it a success. You guys would leave right now. I go, I don't care how we make it a success. Who are you following? What are we doing? It? Why are we doing it? So the what of the vision always precedes the how. You'll always know what God has put in your heart to do long before you know how he intends to bring it about. I hate that, <laughs> don't you? I don't like that, how God works that way, but that's what he does. I word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. You're always going to know uh, what he's put on your heart. You're going to get fired up. You're going to get passionate, but you're not going to have the answers. Don't let that scare you. Don't let that scare you. That's exactly where God wants you. I mean, he wants me not knowing? Yes. Why? Why do you think? Faith. And you're going to hold his hand, and you're not going to walk away. You're not going to walk away. You're going to want to be with your father because you're a little bit scared to get too far off the path. It's right where he wants you. He doesn't want you to go running off without him. So let's continue. Let's pick up the pace here a little bit. I went out by night by the valley gate. To, now he's going to tell exactly what he did. Uh, to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and so to the good part of the gate and to the, where they take the trash everything. I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal that I was under to pass. So he comes to this one section that's completely impassable. The rubble's so high, the stuff that had grown over, the, the, the brush, everything there. And if anything could have made him go, okay, about ready to do this, and I thought we could, but man, look at this. You can't even get by. We're going to have to go, you know, a football field length around. Of course, probably not those words. And get around this rubble. There's so much rubble. But he just mentions it. That's all he does is mention it. So he's realistic. Then I went up to the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, or the officials. He's just got a tiny group of people that he's downloaded the vision to. Nobody else. And the rest who were there to do the work, he hadn't told any of them. So he keeps saying things like, no one noticed. The officials didn't see me. Good. I accomplished all this under the cloak of night. There was only the moonlight to see. Why does he do this? Because if he had a big mouth, if they saw him pausing it, if they even, you know, heard him saying, hey, Nehemiah was talking about going out tonight to look at the wall. Let's follow him. Then they'd see things. They'd see him pausing at certain sections of the wall. And they would just observe behavior, even if they couldn't hear him talk. And they'd say, I bet that's bothering him. Why do you think he's stopping there? I think he sees all that rubble. You think he's going to quit? I don't know, but we could certainly spread rumors about right there because that looks like it bothers Nehemiah. And all of a sudden, the enemies have this game they like to play called fill in the blank, and he's giving them ammo. He's teaching them how to play this game. So they say things. They could have said things like, hey, we know Nehemiah's bad. Why else would he be sneaking out at night? Right? If they knew three nights in a row, he's going, you know what? Nehemiah never talks to us during the day. Nehemiah has been here three days. He hasn't talked to the officials. He hasn't planned. You think you know why he's here. I think he's up to something sneaky. I think he's trying to cause a rebellion. I think he's going to turn against our desert. Why is he? People don't go out at night unless they're up to something. So the only way to keep enemies from saying this is for them not to know at all what he's doing. So that's what's going on here. Hey, Nehemiah had some men with him. I'm pretty sure they were enemies of King Artaxerxes, and Nehemiah's planning on betraying him. I didn't recognize him, but I'm pretty sure it was so-and-so, who I know is bad. Did you see him clearly? No, but I, I know what he about how tall he is. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do in the game called fill in the blank. Whatever. There's not enough info to know the truth, but more than enough to start damaging rumors or a nice round of everybody's favorite game, fill in the blank. 
So Nehemiah formulates the entire preparation and plan of attack during these three nights that he went out before downloading the vision to himself and then to the people. That's the right order. So now Nehemiah has a realistic picture. He knows it's bad. It's not going to quit, but he knows it's really, really bad. Things are worse than I even thought. There's no sugarcoating this thing. When I talk to the people, I'm going to have to be honest. In fact, I would have looked like a fool if I painted a rosy picture. Now that I know, they'll know I know. But he also knows of something else. So he doesn't get discouraged. He never once mentions anything about turning back. He also knows something else. He knows how great, big is his God. He knows that. My God is huge. So it really doesn't matter how bad the wall is. My God is huge. So it really doesn't matter that it's been 140 years. My God is huge. It doesn't matter that a prophet of God and my friend Ezra, who's still alive and lives here, tried to rebuild the walls and failed. In the Old Testament, Torah, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. They're not separated. So this whole story is together. So Nehemiah knows very well that his buddy and prophet and God's man, Ezra, also failed at this. That's how important planning is. But that doesn't even discourage it. He formulates a plan over these three nights, a plan for what he's going to say to the people. And in verse 17, he says it. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Okay, it's bad, gang. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? It's bad. But we're God's people. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not the way God wants it. So come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, that we may not be a, a, a joke to the people, that we may not be a laughingstock, that they may not point at us and say, where's their God? Let's fix this and put it back on God's path. And gang, that resonated with the people. Because they knew they were God's people. They knew they were chosen to have an impact on this world, that they were separated and marked out to affect not only their own little congregations and gatherings, but also the community around them and even the rest of the world. God picked the Jews, starting with Abraham, so that they would be a testimony to his goodness for the rest of the world. Did they do good at this? They didn't. They didn't. And so plan A, because it's funny, in, in the Old Testament, it's like plan B came before plan A. Plan A was always Jesus Christ coming. He was going to do this right. Through him, the light of the world, the world would know the good news. The Jews were supposed to do that. For a couple of thousand years, they just didn't. They kept it to themselves, and they said, we're God's people, and they were kind of high and mighty about it, and sometimes they worshiped false gods. So the world looked on and, and thought, this is confusing, and there's nothing attractive about it. So he raises this level of concern. He says we shouldn't be a, a reproach for the rest of the world. We should be leading the world. And they were doing poorly in this. So we see one of the crucial building blocks of any great vision worth following here. It's raise the level of concern and download it from yourself to the people. So first of all, he sees it realistically, and his concern that was already high goes higher. The next thing he does when he talks to them is make sure that they're concerned about the things they ought to be concerned about. Are they up until this point? They're really not. They don't care. They're coasting. They've adjusted down to their style of life. They say, hey, this is a tough city. It's dangerous at night. Don't go out. You might get mugged. Have you noticed that in certain cities in the U.S. we do this? We just adjust. We don't try to clean up the city. We don't try to make it any better. We just say, you know, hey, it's New York. That's L.A., East Side. Don't go out at night. It's really bad. Well, how about making it better? Nehemiah is saying, it is really bad, and it's supposed to be good. In fact, this is God's city. So how about, what do you say, we turn it around, and we stop being a laughingstock. So he, lay, he, he raises his own level of concern and then transfers it to the people. 
in Andy Stanley's book, it's a great book called Visioneering, and he tracks Nehemiah in that book. Uh, he says you can see certain building blocks in all great visions. A concern is a basic foundational building block because no one is going to do anything about a vision they don't have the least bit of concern about, right? Can you see Nehemiah going, things could be better, it could be really, really great. And they're going, that's fine now. I'm alive. Nobody picks on me. If we do that, we might get mugged. If we do that, we might get people mad. If you don't get the concern or if you don't get the holy discontent high enough, no one's going to move, right? No one wants to change anything if, if, they're, if they're the slightest bit comfortable. It's the most dangerous thing happening in the United States. The more comfortable we are, the less we go out and vote. The more comfortable we are, the more we say, you can take away some more freedoms. At least you're not picking on me. I don't care what they do. At least they're not changing my life. Well, how long do you think it's going to be before it actually changes your life? It's going to change your life. The little box is going to get smaller, and pretty soon it's going to affect you. The people are in a dangerous place. He's got to make them know this will affect you. In fact, it's affecting you now. You're a laughing stock. Change it. Move it. I hear a lot of things. You may not like Donald Trump, but what does he say all the time? He goes around the rest of the world. America's become a joke. He says that. We're a laughing stock. We're not the great power anymore. We need to get respect and all that. Well, that's what's happening here. He says, do you want to be a joke? You're God's people. This is his city. This is his temple. Even though our God that we worship does not dwell in a house with four walls, he could be anywhere. He chooses to grace us with his presence in this temple, and you don't even go to it because we don't have a wall, and you're scared. Let's change this. Let's be what a church is supposed to be. Let's make a difference. Let's leave a mark. Let's have an impact. As with all vision, there comes a time to share them with others, and it may be from a platform across the dinner table, but after you've laid out a crystal clear concerns about simply continuing on with the status quo, it comes time to paint a picture of how things could be different. So he says, okay, here's your concerns. Now, let me tell you, if we do this, how life's going to change. Pastor Stanley goes on to say that any vision worth pursuing will demand sacrifice and risk. So I want you to listen risk. I want you to listen carefully. In any vision worth following, this is what I've found out, you and I will be called upon to give up the actual good for the potential best. Let me say that again. Any vision worth its all, if it's worth anything at all, if you're going to let go of your life and follow this thing and give your resources and your time and your finances and your backing and your blood, sweat, and tears and all that to this, you will be called upon to give up the actual good that exists in your life right now for the potential best. Does that make sense? There's something better that God wants to do. But I like my life now, but there's something better that God wants to do. God could use you in great ways. He's using me a little bit now, but he could go from a little bit to a lot of bit. What do you want? What do you want? I know that God wants to do more through churches in Charlotte than he's doing now. I, I live with this holy discontent for years. I've lived with it. It haunts me. You know what haunts me? The fact that there's 1,000 plus churches in Charlotte and within a 45-minute drive of, of downtown Charlotte or uptown, depending on what's correct there. And look at the impact. I mean, Christianity, or the spirit of religion, I mean, it's a mile wide, right? Inch deep. Jesus trained up and spent 24-7 with 11 guys that counted. Judas doesn't count. And those 11 guys, not 11 churches, 11 guys went out and changed the world. If one church was sold out to the vision and the, and the mission that Jesus called us to, we could change the world. How come a thousand aren't doing that much? Now, I know that's daunting. That's daunting to me. You hear that and you go, wow, if they can't do it, what makes us think we're different? Because we serve a great big God. Well, aren't they following the great big God? Yeah, let me correct it. There are a handful of churches here, maybe more than a handful, that actually are getting it done. They're doing amazing things, but there aren't a thousand. 
just aren't. I think most of them have gotten comfortable and they just kind of do church every week. Hey, we come, we get a lesson. I love my group. These people, we have dinner together. And all, but where's changing the world for Christ? Where's that? Because this life is just a dress rehearsal for all of eternity. This is getting ready and becoming more like Christ so we can spend all of eternity celebrating what he made of us down here. So if you don't do it down here, what are you going to have up there? This is just a dress rehearsal. Listen, any vision worth following, you know, I'll be called to give up the good that we have right now for the potential best. I'm going to find it necessary to leave the comfortable and familiar in order to embrace that which is uncomfortable and absolutely unfamiliar, new territory. And all the while, if you're like me, you will be haunted by the fear that this thing you are investing so much of yourself in may not work at all. You just will. It's always there. It's this little nagging thing that goes, um, God, what if this doesn't work? It's just checking. Are, are we lined up here? Am I really falling? I told you this is the fourth time, you know, as far as a ministry movement in my life that, that I feel like God's called my wife and I, my family out. And actually, before I met Michelle, a couple of them were there, where it just looked like, this is crazy. <laughs> it looked like this. This is insane. But in the three previous ones, God did a miraculous thing out of nothing and never had to start this good. Honestly, gang, I think this is the one where he's going to do what he put on my heart more than 20 years ago, an amazing movement in Charlotte. So how do you get past this? So it's me and you. I heard a voice over here. We're together. There's two of us. Hoping to <laughs> yeah, there's three. like that. Uh, so how do you do How do you get past this fear? It's there. It's real. Well, you keep moving past the fear and through the trials, and you get stronger. You get stronger. How do you get stronger? I know it's not fun. Getting, you, you get stronger through the pain. You get stronger through the trials. James tells us that the trials a believer encounters, they're to count as joy. They're kind of like spiritual weightlifting. They only make us stronger. But just like real weights, you can't just say, I know weights make us strong, but I'm skipping it today. I went once last week. Well, you're not going to get stronger. The old saying, no pain, no gain. You lift, it hurts, you tax the muscles, they build up in the rest period time, they get stronger. It's the same thing in our lives. You go through hurt, you go through trials, and guess what? You don't make that mistake again. You go through trials, and the next time you face a trial like that, you are stronger than the last time. And you are a little bit more like Jesus than the last time. And God does something in your life. When I witnessed God turn my huge and godless high school around for Jesus, Delaney High School, Timonium, Maryland, 3,000 kids, two Christians that I knew of. I could only find one other one, and he wasn't interested in helping me. So I thought, you know, there's this thing called Young Life. We could get a Young Life group here. We got a Young Life group there. Three of us showed up. It's my junior year. We started inviting people. Uh, and, and God allowed me to get involved in some things that I had some kind of pull and some influence in my high school, and I used that to bring people to this, bait and switch. I still do that. And I got them to come, and by my senior year, we had 300 kids in Young Life. That was when I, I'm 16 years old when that started. That's when I got a taste of what God could do if just one person was willing to change it. Young Life is still at that high school, even five years later. Like, no, even all these years. <laughs> all the, wow, nasty, mean people. Um, and then it prepared me to take on a decimated and forgotten Young Life area. The Young Life area that I took on at Dallas Theological Seminary was a forgotten one where Jim Rayburn started it 50 years earlier. Uh, it was a wealthy part of North Dallas. North Dallas moved more north, and that was forgotten. 
It became poor, decimated, gang-ridden, minorities. Uh, every, it, it just every, it was a racial melting pot, and they throw this wasp in there, this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, just to get rid of me. I know what they were doing. Here, go take Thomas Jefferson High School. See you later. <laughs> Much later, like never again. Nine kids showed up at that first meeting. I think there was, you know, and I say this just, you know, a little. I saw God do a beautiful racial thing. I think one kid there was white, mostly Hispanic, some African-American kids, a couple Asian kids. One, um, one kid was white. I'm going, why, why God me? Why? It doesn't fit. I, 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 I don't know if I can relate. What did I do? I went back to old school young life. I just started meeting them at Taco Bell. It's where they hung up, started hearing about their lives. Started seeing things change. Started a club at their school. Only about 20 people showed up. Six months later, 100 people showing up at club. Three years later, nine schools, 400 kids, and tons of kids getting saved. How'd that happen? Pastor Rob, what did you do? I don't have a clue. In fact, how many of you have ever heard of Tony Evans, preacher Tony Evans? Tony Evans is an unbelievable preacher. Thousands go to his church. He's a little bit older than me. And Young Life Central in Colorado, the headquarters, the president, everybody came down regionally to Dallas uh, there were a ton of people in this room. It was kind of like this, and they wanted to hear two experts on bringing racial harmony and getting gang children involved in Young Life. Tony Evans and me. <laughs> I had no idea what to say. I didn't have a clue what to say at the meeting. In fact, my speech was like, that was the only time I got up to preach and say something that was five minutes. It was, that was it. What did you do? I don't really know, but there's this book, you know, Young Life. You know, uh, uh, it's a Cinderella kid with the gospel that Jim Rayburn wrote. I just went back to what he said. Just met them where they were, and so God did. So fast forward a little bit more, and you get to this um, community where we live now. And God uses me to plant a church that grows from two in our living room to 300. It's more of a traditional church. Later, I wanted to see more relevance in a different kind of church, so we only had 50 people. And that one, it grows from 50 to 2,000 in six years. Now we're starting with, I mean, if everybody shows up now with their kids that has, that has gotten a hold of us, there's over 400 people now. Most of them say, I'll wait till you get in the school, then I won't have to really clean up or anything, right? No, you still do. There's a lot of work to do. I don't know what they're thinking. That's going to be a big shock when they show up. Um, but I want to be a part of it. So each time it gets a, a little bit bigger, and, I, and the result is a little bit greater. I've seen God do these amazing things. So I want to ask you guys, I just want you to honestly evaluate me as your, your pastor. How do you think I'm approaching the launching of Impact Church when you see the years I've spent in ministry of what I've seen God do? Where's my faith? What do you think? It's grown. It's not small. Some of you are going, are you hurt? Are you wounded? No, I'm excited. I'm excited. I've seen God do this. I know what he can do. I'm not going to be a bonehead this time. I'm going to get it right. I got people around me, bonehead patrol, helping me not, <laughs> bonehead security, helping me not, you know, wig out or something. Pastor Rob, you got like three gifts. Use those. We'll do the other ones. Um, I'm praying. Let me give you some specifics. We'll close with this. I am praying, and I hope you'll join me in this. I am praying that fans, mere fans of Jesus, stay in the bleachers and don't become a part of this launch team. Jesus is not interested in fans. He just never was. They don't do anything. I have a feeling that everywhere we move, eventually we're going to be needing seats pretty quick. So I want followers in those seats, not fans, while we build this launch team. So pray that followers will join us in droves over the next few weeks and months. 400 is what I'm praying for by December from God. That's my faith. That's what I'm praying for. Usually I disappoint God, and he says, you think too small. We'll see. We may have to adjudge it. Pray with me that 
400 would come by December so that we can invite another 200 lost to hear the gospel at Christmas Eve services. That's what I want. I haven't changed. When Christmas comes and Easter comes, we're given the gospel in a big, relevant way. People will get saved. But we need a pretty strong core of you to invite those people. Don't invite church people to that. Invite the lost to that. You can bring your families and stuff they're visiting, but invite the lost. Then from 500 or so excited and committed veterans and brand new believers alike, baptized and following Christ, we prepare to make an impact in the South Charlotte community around us with an Easter that sees 1,000 in attendance and over 100 saved. That's what I'm praying for for Easter. Easter will be the grand opening for Impact Church. Some of you guys are like, well, that's like months and months away. What are we doing between that? We're doing this. We're doing this. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to prepare. We're in the pre-launch phase. We're getting ready. We're going to do it right. We've seen God do amazing things, and I made every mistake you can make, and he still did amazing things. So God and I were talking the other day, and I was saying, what would happen if I did some things right? Would it, would it be better? And God's going, yeah, I want you to do things right. That would be cool if you did that. Uh, it wasn't those exact words, but that's how he talks to me. Verse 19, but when Sambal the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant of Geshem Nareb heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? There it is. That's what I said I'd talk about later. No, they're not rebelling against the king. And they know they're not rebelling against the king. These guys don't really know what Nehemiah is going to do. They don't have a lot of details. All they know is that Nehemiah is planning on resurrecting the Rebuild the Wall project, and they don't like that. If he does that, their little fiefdoms are going to be greatly affected, and they're going to lose out. So they've got to stop them. And so they lie, and they slander. And here's what I want you to get. You know what Nehemiah says to their lies and their slander? Verse 20, I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise, and we will build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem saying, God has called me to do this, and we're going to do it. He doesn't even mention the letters. He doesn't say, you know what? I'll sue you for that. You know that's not true. I'll take you to court of law. I'll show the letters. I can win this. He doesn't even care. He doesn't even care. He bypasses all that, and he says, the bottom line is God's with me, and so you've already lost. You can't stop this thing. It's going to roll right over you like a tidal wave. God's work, here's what he's saying to Rob Singleton paraphrase. And I promise you, this is the last line of my sermon. God's work done God's way and in God's time will never lack God's resources and support. God's work done God's way and in God's time will never lack God's resources and support. All right, here's your homework. We're going to close in prayer. Read Nehemiah 3 for next week. Read Nehemiah 3. Don't just speed read it, but really think about it, pray about it, dwell on it. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.